two, three. Two bros on an epic adventure to find a shit ton of gold. Oh boy. I feel like this has come up in conversation before and I am very excited to watch. Okay, have you seen The Road to El Dorado? All right. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. This is childhood favorite. It's I won't even I won't even say anymore. I'm so excited to rewatch this. It's actually on Netflix, so we don't have to pay oh, for this fantastic. one. Go watch it soon before it comes down, because awesome. they all do. Oh my god! It's tough to be a god. Hi, welcome to K Have You Seen? I'm Kari. And I'm Kyle. And today we're going to be talking about one of the best animated films of the 2000s, possibly of all the years. Super bold statement oh, to open it up. I will back it up. The Road to El Dorado, one of my personal faves, if you can't tell. I made Kyle watch this last week and we are going to dive in. But first, let me give you a little synopsis. So for those of you who have not seen this gold standard classic. All about the gold puns All tonight. about the gold puns. We're just getting started. So uh, Rotten Tomatoes has Tulio and Miguel, a pair of two-bit conmen, believe they have found their path to fortune and glory when they win a map to El Dorado, the legendary city of gold. There's only one problem. They've wound up locked in a brig on a ship of the Spanish explorer Cortez. After a daring escape with the help of a clever warhorse named Altivo, they manage to stumble onto El Dorado, only to find their troubles are just beginning. Uh, my own, it, after having watched it and reading no synopses, the way I would have described it was uh, mm. Kevin Klein and Kenneth Branagh in a period piece in which they play 16th century Spanish con artists who trick a South American civilization into believing that they are gods. True, more or less. I think you left out the joy, but it's it's factually accurate. And granted, I did that on purpose because with that setup, it almost seems like a very serious live action drama. Could which it be. could be, and we'll I've most got, certainly is not. I've got could a lot be. to say about that later on in the show. Ooh, but. Oh, I'm very excited. Mm -hmm. Well, let's just start off with how did you feel about it? I have to be very honest with you. You have to. All right. So I got through the first act of the movie and I thought, why in the world did Kari make me watch this? <laughs> the, the first act. I did not care for the opening of this movie. Ooh, okay. Uh, you know, and I, I don't want to put you on the defensive right away. No, no, no. Because it did pick up steam. I will say that it picked up steam a lot. I thought that for what it was going for, it was very good. Had I seen it at the correct time in my life, I probably would have loved it. At the time that it came out, I just didn't see it. Um, I was like 11 in 2000. And too old, way too yeah, old. Yeah, and that's, that's probably Actually it. too young, but we will talk about that later. I was both too old and too young. <laughs> so I do think that this is an interesting case study of like the power of nostalgia for one thing. Sure. And how when you first see something as a youngster, it can really influence the way you see it for the rest of your life. I did not think it was bad. I want to be very clear about that. Mm -hmm. I did not think this movie was bad. I thought it was definitely for someone other than Kyle Aver. <laughs> But I still went in with an open mind, and I enjoyed it. I had a fun ride. All right, all right. Well, yeah, we'll see how you feel at the end of this hour. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I. as far as my background with this movie, I saw this at the appropriate, mm -hmm. questionable, again, sure. we will talk about that later, age. Um, it was one of me and my best friend's favorite movies, and we watched it a million times, specifically rewinding certain parts, especially the... 
pause faces. Oh my god. The pause faces in this movie are so good. And as kids, we died. Chell's like, <laughs> my only wish is to serve the gods. And then like, that super exaggerated frown. <laughs> we watched that a million times over. We thought it was so, so funny. And yeah, it's just, it was one that we would always watch when we were at her house. And I've just always have this fondness for it that I could still, I can still watch it and have a great time. And I feel like you brought up a good point because uh, we discussed this a little bit when you had first proposed this movie for us to cover. Mm. And one of the reasons I was curious about it is because I had never seen it and I was trying to remember why I had never seen it. And because, let's be honest, at 11 you're still watching animated movies almost exclusively. Right. Um, and this definitely seemed like something that would have been right up my alley. And I think that if you remember what I told you was that I could even at that age tell that this was not Disney trying to be Disney. Sure, yes. And what you just brought up about the faces, it's not just not Disney. It's DreamWorks. And DreamWorks, since 2000, and since our generation has become more active on the internet, has become almost infamous for its quote-unquote DreamWorks face. The face mm -hmm. that characters make on every poster for every DreamWorks movie with, like, the one arched eyebrow and the mischievous smile. Uh, oh, I have never heard of never that heard as of a thing. Face? No. Folks, if you've never heard of the DreamWorks face, do yourself a favor and go on Google Images and just type in DreamWorks face. I guarantee you will laugh. I'm looking it up right Please now. Please do, and you will know exactly what it is the first time you see it. But, oh, yeah, and, you know, every studio, and that's not taking anything away from DreamWorks, every studio has its own signature style. DreamWorks unfortunately had the bad luck of becoming known for <laughs> one particular expression. She's looking oh my at god, it. it's so true! Yep, right? Oh, okay, I see. I wasn't picturing it when you said it, but now I totally see it. It's that, like, I'm about to do this face. Yeah. It's okay. like it's like a mix of mischief and determination on, on one kind of... Yeah, yeah. right? Oh, okay, boy. I was gonna say, I don't think this face really makes an appearance in this movie, but the mis the mixture of <laughs> mischievous and determination... They were still honing their craft on the, on, the, on the DreamWorks face <laughs> at this time in history. For their renaissance. Yeah. Well, first of all, before we get too into the weeds here, what in particular... First of all, do you remember how old you were when you first saw this movie? Was it when it was in theaters? Was it oh, later on? Yes, I did definitely see it in theaters, and I only remember that because we came in a little bit late. I think I saw it with my family, not even with this friend that I have this strong mm. memory with, but I saw it with my family, and we arrived late, and so it was just the middle of that, that intro sequence with all the very, like, it has a very unique art style, especially it when it's um, dealing with kind of the El Dorado portion mm -hmm. of the movie. The way they kind of envision that folk art, and there's a, there's a sequence at the very beginning where they where it's all that, and it's very colorful and it's very stylized. And I remember walking into the theater and just seeing that and being like, "What?" And that introduction, now that you brought that up, is done in song. Yes, and by I, Sir Elton John, who wrote all the music with Tim Rice. Let's just say, right, which was the same team that won an Oscar for the music for The Lion King. Yep, and. That is for sure something that I noticed having, again, watched this for the first time as a person who's seen lots of movies, was that this was possibly the most obvious example of DreamWorks sort of emulating Disney's style in a mm -hmm. lot of ways. Yeah. That's not a bad thing, necessarily. DreamWorks is a pretty young company at the time. They were, this was one of their earlier movies. and so, But it definitely seemed like something where it was... Disney-like, but not quite on the mark. 
And I say that only because, you know, as a youngster, I probably would not have really recognized the information they were trying to give me in that introduction song. Oh, yeah. I don't think, I don't think that was an info dump. It's just a, like, yeah, right. introduction to the world. But that is, it's interesting you say that, too, because it's, this is the only DreamWorks animated picture that did not earn a profit. It, it fell about... 20 million short of its like 96 million yeah, budget. This was an expensive ass movie. It was very expensive. I mean, if you look at the the cast too, it's Kenneth Branagh yes. and and um and Kevin Kline. Mm-hmm. So, not cheap actors. Certainly not. Certainly not in 2000. So, it they 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 spent a good bit of money and there's some like pretty well-known voices on it. So, yeah, they didn't they didn't clear it though, which is a bummer. It's a bummer and also even though like I say, this was not necessarily my favorite movie to watch. It was also kind of a surprise to find out that it didn't turn a profit because I seem to remember it being much more popular than I guess it actually was. Right. I do feel like a lot of people have seen this movie, mm-hmm. so I I don't know where that came in. But, I mean, it was it was very expensive. So. Yeah, very. Um, you know, I mean, you do see a lot of that in uh, what now looks almost like quaint like animation um, in the hand-drawn style, even though a lot of it was obviously computer amplified. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it doesn't. It doesn't really appear to be. Um, it doesn't appear necessarily to be a ninety-six million dollar movie. Yeah. Um, not sure exactly why it was that expensive, other than the star power connected to it. But mm-hmm. it does look very good. I mean, the animation is very, very nice. Yeah, and the stylistic choices, I really think, like you know, animation is. It looks really great, but just. The art of it, Mm -hmm. I think, is pretty successful. Agreed. So, when you first saw this, you probably were not a very... What's the word I'm looking for here? You probably had not seen a ton, a ton of movies and a very diverse range of styles. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, that's pretty fair. Okay. So, re-watching it, I was wondering, did you make any connections to other movies that may have come before or since... Anything that it reminded you of that looked like influences? Anything that comes to mind, even the most obvious? Mm-hmm. I think one thing that definitely struck me rewatching it now was the fact that it's Kevin Klein and Kenneth Brown. Like, I just didn't have that much experience with mm-hmm. them at that time. And now listening to it and just thinking about those people and apparently, fun fact, um, this is an animated movie where they actually had a lot of the two leads recording their lines together, which yeah. is not typical for animated films. Especially, especially animated time. films with, like, superstars. Right. And, again, to the film's credit, this chemistry between these two characters is very strong. It really is. They're, like, their bromance is what carries this entire film. Yeah. So, I, I will say, as an adult watching this movie for the first time, four things came to mind. Four mm. different films. Um, first of all, the... Road to movies, right? The ones from the '40s with Bing Crosby and Bob Hope, which it was based on my very cursory Wikipedia research, was the inspiration for this movie, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, mm-hmm. like from the title to the dynamic between the two leads, it makes a lot of sense. And there were like seven or eight road movies with Hope and Crosby back in the '40s, and so um, they had a pretty well-established pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was pretty obvious. One, another pretty obvious one was, to me, um, Pocahontas. You know, okay. there's a little bit of, like, that, you know... The dynamic between Tulio and Miguel with the native population mm. was much friendlier, obviously, than in Pocahontas, but it was still the same 
kind of uh, the setup was similar. I will right. say, you know, the kind of settler native yeah. dynamic and it was cultural all, shock thing. If we were going to try to combine multiple Disney movies, it would be like Pocahontas and Emperor's New Groove. You know? Oh my gosh! Right? Yeah, no, yeah. totally accurate. With and I dash, love both those movies. With, with Jafar plucked out of <laughs> Aladdin and dropped into the whole thing. That was an interesting thing too. That just like being more familiar with just storytelling and movies in general, like. That whole, the revisionist history thing, mm -hmm. and the fact that Cortez, you think he's kind of the bad guy, he oh. is not the bad guy. Oh, I got thoughts about that. Oh, okay, we'll, we'll get there, but, we'll get there, but... But the, I, I, real quick before you got too far, uh, far along, the other two movies that uh, it definitely reminded me of were Apocalypto. Oh, I haven't seen that You haven't one. seen, okay, well, add, add it to the list. list. It's, the, the short version of it is that it is set in a Mesoamerican, um... I mean, there's going to be a spoiler here, but let's be honest, we're not going to cover this particular movie. It's a good one that we should cover. Season two, maybe. Maybe season two. You'll, by the time we talk about it, you'll forget. But the last scene in Apocalypto is this guy who has escaped a ritual human sacrifice in a hidden Mesoamerican civilization and um, even survived that murder ball basketball thing. Um, oh. And he escapes... And the last scene of the movie is him arriving on the beach as Cortez's armada is rowing ashore. So this movie, Road to El Dorado, could very much be read as a direct, or I guess Apocalypto could be read as a direct prequel Whoa. to El Dorado. Oh man, we've got universe conspiracies yeah, now. Yeah, so there's that. But then also, and here's, this is... Uh, I would be very surprised if you had seen this, but also very impressed. It's a movie called The Man Who Would Be King. Have you ever heard of this movie? Oh, yeah. Okay. No, I haven't okay, seen yeah. it. Okay, yeah. I have heard of it. I have okay. not seen it. It came out in like 76, I think, and it's a John Huston film starring um, Sean Connery and Michael Caine. Nice. As oh, love Michael it's, Caine. It's based on a Rudyard Kipling story in which these two British Army soldiers go AWOL to establish a kingdom for themselves in like a region of the Hindu Kush, uh -huh. um, in this in this Pakistan Afghanistan border area, and to find this remote tribe that's like uh, this legendary tribe that's supposed to be living up there, to establish themselves as kings. And it is about these two Europeans in a what they consider primitive native culture, and they come to venerate them as god kings. Oh, wow. um, and about the issues that arise between these two characters. Tell me that doesn't sound an awful lot like The Road to El Dorado. That sounds an awful lot like The Road to El Dorado. Furthermore, with that in mind, how interesting could this movie have been as a live-action drama with the same two lead actors, Kevin Klein and Kenneth Branagh? Oh, so basically sub out The Man Who Would Be King with exactly. Kevin, Kevin Klein and uh, Kenneth Same plot as Road to El Dorado, but to transpose it into the world of, like, let's say, R-rated historical live-action fiction. <laughs> That could be pretty interesting, it, right? It could be. It could be. But we wouldn't have the music of Sir Elton John. We could. We, would. we, we still could. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, not opposed, I'm not opposed to leaving it in there. We're frankly. making this film. We can do whatever the fuck we want. <laughs> but um, those are the things that came to mind when I first saw this film this past weekend. Yeah, I think it's too deeply ingrained kind of in my psyche to be like oh, sure. a reference to anything. Definitely there are things that I notice now that are like, oh, okay. The settler thing mm -hmm. didn't feel that nearly as like, you know, with with stories like that, it's kind of on a razor's edge of like, how are we telling the story? Mm -hmm. How are we showing these people? Mm -hmm. Especially kind of in in the state the world is in now. By the way, especially, and this was very ironic, I found, and I know that you didn't do this on purpose, but the fact that you made me watch this over Columbus Day weekend was seemed <gasps> very apropos. Did not even think about it. Not as I, so right true. now. So true. You know what? 
Yep, that was a statement <laughs> on my part, and I hope you got it. Yeah, think about it, man. Yeah, yeah, that, that, I, I overall, I think they, they handled it fine. From my brief browsing of the Wikipedia page, it did generate a somewhat of amount of controversy. I don't know how large this was, this was 17 years ago, but with people saying that this was an offensive portrayal of indigenous people. I didn't necessarily see it that way because one thing in particular, to bring it back to the Pocahontas comparison, one thing that this movie definitely did that Pocahontas did not do was add depth to the indigenous culture, uh, civilization that they were, uh, I guess the inappropriate way to say it would be visiting. They were visiting this culture, but in a very, in a movie that's 90 minutes and a fast 90 minutes, mm -hmm. They add a pretty significant amount of character depth to the local population. You know, they're they're three-dimensional people. Right. And on the same, like, level of cleverness and agency yeah. as the lead. Like, at, at by the end of the movie, they have all figured out what's up. Mm -hmm. And they have, you know, each of the people who are native to El Dorado that are main characters and yeah. are dealing with our, our protagonists are... They've figured it out and they're handling it in their various different ways. But and that's something I caught this time that the chief actually figures it out. I didn't get that as a kid, <sighs> but like there's that moment where you're just like, oh, he gets what's up. Yeah, like, and he doesn't care. He's, he's completely he's not cool with it. He yeah, mind. And, I mean, he, he was actually suspiciously not curious about where they did come from. Okay, you guys right? are gods. What is your deal? Who are you? Why are you here? I mean. I gotta think, I'm not, like, an evil shaman guy, but if I found out someone was, like, faking being a god to trick my whole city, I'd still be suspicious of them, even if I was a good guy. And I guess, I, I guess that shouldn't surprise me that much, because this chief has been dealing with the high priest who has been, like, <laughs> conjuring weird illusions and summoning giant rock jaguars for, yeah. uh, presumably for decades... So seeing two guys who have pale complexions and wear weird clothes probably isn't that big of a deal to him at this point. Yeah, he's been dealing with uh, Khan's shit for so long that <laughs> he's just like, whatever. Well, you spit that name out like a professional. My oh, goodness. I have seen this movie so many times. <laughs> Shout out to Heather. Love you so much. Um, I know I've touched on it a couple times. The music. What did you think of the music? Any favorite songs? Ooh, boy, oh boy, oh boy. Or did oh you not care for it? Um... One of those answers is wrong. Uh, <laughs> Just kidding. I did not super care for the music. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. I Okay, and in my own defense, I felt like it was like almost in the uncanny valley for The Lion King. Okay. It was right. too close, but not quite at that level. If I had probably... Possibly if I had never heard the soundtrack to The Lion King, I would be much more... What kind of world free. would that be? It's, it's topsy-turvy. The Microsoft Zune is the most popular music player in town. <laughs> Who knows? But the point is that if I had not heard that A-plus a grade uh, Rice and John work, then mm. this C-plus fair to middling... Uh, it is a solid work. B, oh, at oh, least. Mm. Oh my god! I mean, it probably doesn't help that I'm not a huge Elton John fan in the first place. Which let me—I know you're making a face right now that is making me oh. think that the wine has gone sour in your glass. Oh but no, I, that's not it. That's not it. Um, I know. Something like, else is taste. I, I, we can talk about music in a million different movies. I guarantee that when I make you watch Repo Man, you're not going to like the music in that one. But that oh, I, I have been wanting to see that. Oh, good. Excellent. Well, you are in luck, my friend, because that is on the list. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I did not care for the music. 
I thought in a few cases, I don't know how Disney does it where they have super exposition-y music that doesn't feel super exposition-y mm. in context. It almost felt like the music in this movie was either totally superfluous or straight exposition. The one exception to that, and this is not my endorsement or me saying this is my favorite song in the soundtrack, was the It's Tough to Be a God or whatever it's called. Because mm -hmm. I thought that one was the most... I can't avoid Disney comparisons. It was the most Disney-like, it felt like. Mm -hmm. in, in the sense that it was not straight exposition, but it wasn't totally unnecessary. It was actually conveying an emotion more than information or just a, a very ostentatious secondary soundtrack. I get that. And I would say that is my favorite song All on the right. soundtrack. That's, it's just the most fun and catchy. It is fun but and catchy. the Disney comparison is fair because I really is thinking about it now. Like, that is... I just can't wait to be king from The Lion King. It like, is. that whole kind of dream sequence, kind of trippy hallucination stream of consciousness thing that happens is very much correlated to that song. So I see that, but it's... Let me ask you a question here real quick. How frequently do you now, or in the past, um, check out the website TV Tropes? Are you familiar with oh, this? Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, I'll get definitely down that rabbit hole. So you're probably familiar with the concept of the I Want song. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's Tough to Be a God was in the point of the movie where it probably should have been an I Want song, but it wasn't. Like you said, Can't Wait to Be King. That's an I want song. That is literally I want to be king. Yeah. And as similar as these two were, it's like, it, I, 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 I don't know, I felt like for the whole movie, that was kind of my, my, my deal, was that it was so close to like the Disney formula, but they just didn't quite nail it yet. And that song in particular, even though I did think personally it was the best one in the soundtrack, not it, it's case in point with that. Hmm. I mean, I didn't think it needed an I, I want something. Like, these characters are so... They're not pursuing a goal that they achieve by the end of the movie. That's more, oh, it's that more is absolutely true. We that should is, talk about that. Yeah, we can get into spoilers now because, spoiler alert, they do not get what they want. They get what they always needed. But it's not what they set out for. But they're never... It's not a pursue it's not a quest kind of movie a lot of disney movies are there is a quest right. and that's why you need an i want song because we need to set up this quest yes this although it literally kind of is a quest there is no at no point do they set out to achieve a thing they it's, stumble upon a thing they stumble upon kind of their quote-unquote quest but it is never like oh we are gonna set sail we are gonna find gold we are gonna get rich we're gonna be gods it is like we're here, this thing have A lot of, there is, as far as, like, plot agency with characters, there's not a lot here. They stumble into it. And I, I don't think it's bad. I think it's kind of subverting, you know, a very standard trope of, of what a character, especially in an animated movie, needs to do. And the way you just described that just made me think that another movie that this is similar to, although I did not put it together until you just said that, it is almost in some ways similar to Titanic, where, like, with the whole track of DiCaprio and that guy from Entourage winning the tickets at the beginning of the movie, oh, yeah. and that's, that, that is the whole reason why they're on the boat, but that's not why Tulio and Miguel are on the boat, but then they end up on this boat for going from Europe to America and then go overboard. So, yeah, it's... There, there are connections here. There I mean, are connections. Uh, they're both boat movies. They're, so both, boat, that. they're both boat movies, yeah, yeah. 
But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I felt like in some ways it almost felt like this was a movie that was caught in development hell. And from what I understand, the actual development of this movie was kind of fraught with a lot of creative differences. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a way it's almost, uh, I'm trying to remember what they, like apparently the crew had a nickname for this movie that was, um, oh, it was, it was called Eldorado. It was at the time the working title was Eldorado Lost City of Gold. And the crew had a nickname that was Eldorado, the Lost City on Hold. Oh, um, I did not read about that. I, I saw that on Wikipedia, so it may be completely made up. But it does. The more I think about it, the more it seems like a type of movie that has had that had um, problems in development that ended up manifesting in problems that only a film school nerd would notice, <laughs> and kids do not care about at all. For example the unsureness about what type of movie it kind of wanted to be. Like, it obviously wants to be a kid-friendly family movie. Mm. But then also drawing on those kind of story elements from the Bob Hope and Bing Crosby movies that are like, you know, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with those, but a lot of them, like, their plots were kind of improvised. The plot made no, had no bearing whatsoever on the actual unfolding of the film. Um, I hadn't seen any of those. So, so you're not missing a ton, I would say. I know that there's probably people that I know that work at Turner Classic Movies who would just, like, kill me if they heard me say Have that. Have you seen them? Have you seen all of them? I've seen a couple of them, and they're all pretty similar, but they're enjoyable and fun. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you're missing much. But the point is that they, it was just these two guys. One's the brains. One is, like, the, uh, the personality, more or less. Mm-hmm. And one always gets the girl. The other one doesn't. And they have creative differences, and they clash, and they get back together, and in the end, they all ride off into the sunset. That's pretty much how they all go. All right. But they're in Morocco, or Bali, or Hong Kong, or whatever. Mm. This one happens to be in El Dorado. Also happens to be in the 15th or 16th century. So, anyway, point being that it, it was kind of drawing on influences that, like, younger audiences, A, wouldn't connect with, B, would not care that they're not connecting with it because they're connecting with this movie. Right. Which clearly you did. So I did. I, I'm I'm kind of curious to to think more like having watched this movie over and over and over again as a younger person. Mm. Did you have any kind of like conception at the time of what it was you were connecting with? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, it's so colorful and just there's one liners. I have always been just a very my mind sticks to quotes and to song lyrics and stuff like, so like I am very much a, a movie quoting person. Like 50% of the things I say are not at all original. They are from some source material at least. So I I think there's a lot of just really clever one liners and a lot of, it's a very, it's just over the top and the line delivery, the music, obviously the, the design we've talked about, everything is just kind of larger than life but in a way that's really easy to digest. There's not a lot of, you know, super cerebral mm-hmm. anything you have to think about. It's not even a super emotional movie, which a lot of not these really. animated films, I feel like especially now we're trending into more so, but even The Lion King and all those yeah, get, yeah. get very heavy emotionally, which is not, I'm, I have never shied away sure. from that, but I, this one, it's just, it's so digestible and it's so just delicious. Like we talked about with yes. The Fall, it is so... It's a feast. It's a feast, and it's easy to watch a hundred times over. And I will say that, and that's one thing I didn't bring up and I should have earlier, is that I appreciated that departure from the Disney formula. I appreciated the fact that this particular movie never pretended to be a heart-wrenching, emotional, drama mixed 
with a musical comedy. Right. Which I feel, I don't think that's a bad thing that Disney does, but it does create a lot of mood whiplash. There was no mood whiplash in this movie. It never got too heavy. Mm-hmm. It was always, in that sense, always very clear about what its mission was, which was to be fun and entertaining for kids and possibly adults. And, and, and at that, I think it probably succeeded. Clearly, mm-hmm. I mean, it, I, I'm, not the te- I'm not the test audience for that. You are. Yep. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely correct about that. I think it's, um, I, I think it's a great testament to the film that it never... It never strays into, like, drama territory. Right. And that's something, too. Like, watching it now as an adult, there are there are some real dramatic elements to mm. it that I just... It didn't matter so much to me as a kid. But then, like, watching it and being like, okay, you know, we're getting into the end of the movie. But, like, the point where Tulio and Miguel decide that they're going to split and mm. they're, they're just not on the same path anymore. Like, that's a real thing. That's a real... Sure emotion that you have as an adult where you're like oh this person that I thought was kind of ride or die they've been Mm. with me for this extended amount of time now like we just want different things and even in friendships and stuff and especially in friendships that's something you just don't get as a kid and you know you get it more as an adult but it's never it never weighs anything down exactly and I feel like that was the kind of thing that was probably the closest thing to a life lesson that that movie was trying to like show kids it's like you might think you're super good friends with somebody and then just want different and things. then you just split, and yeah. it's a tough thing to do. And I thought that was kind of an interesting moment in the film because it was very realistic. I felt like that was very true to life in the way they depicted that of just like two people who are, you know, they've kind of gotten used to each other, but uh, it's gotten to a point where they don't want the same thing anymore and their paths are diverging, or so they think, because they come together at the end. Right. Spoilers. Uh, but yeah, go ahead. And that's something, uh, this is kind of going off in a different direction, so if you have more to say, we can stay. But that's something I do have a problem with, with movies like this, like the Wizard of Oz kind of movie where main character gets put into some kind of fantasy outside land mm-hmm. that's different from their their home world. They never stay, or they never, it doesn't really change. They continue on or go back. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why, why can't they ever stay, mm-hmm. you know? Or... As this movie does, option three. You can stay, you can go home, or you can go someplace else. They never go someplace else. They never, they, I won't say they never, never stay. Mm-hmm. I mean, usually they don't. You're right. Um, for sure, I think in the Disney canon, any movie that involves really anybody that comes in from the outside world. Whoa, actually, I'm going to take a hard left turn here. Ooh. How familiar are you with the white messiah concepts in films and fiction uh not in any deep way but i, I get what that is all right yeah because or uh, as tv tropes would call it the mighty whitey so <laughs> yeah same thing so I love TV tropes. for those who are unfamiliar uh think to yourself what do the movies pocahontas avatar and dances with wolves all have in common and if you're saying the story you're right but dig a little bit deeper what happens in that story you got a dude Typically, in all three of these cases, a white dude from a colonizing force who lands and is trapped for some reason amongst the native population. And he is the sole reason why the native population is able to hold off the invaders. Mm-hmm. This movie plays with that concept in the sense that the invaders have not shown up. It's just these two guys. Mm-hmm. 
I'm curious to what your thoughts are about that. Like, you know, because this movie definitely does not follow that formula. Mm-hmm. There are elements of it, and I feel like it kind of plays with that. And I'm kind of curious as to, like, what your thoughts are. Looking at it as an adult now, mm-hmm. and having seen these other movies, like Dances with Wolves or whatever. Ooh, I do want to know what you, what difference is. Because just skimming the surface, it's like, yeah, that's pretty much, like, shot for shot what this is. But... Well, there's never a confrontation in El Dorado between the residents of El Dorado and Cortez's force. Which, as right. you mentioned earlier, Cortez is kind of set up in the very beginning of the movie as being the main antagonist. He's in three scenes, right. the whole movie. And he is more of a force of nature Definitely. than Khan is the true pro- antagonist. Like, he is treated for sure as a force of nature. Right. Um, right. And he, like a beast almost, you know, like, mm-hmm. like, a, like a dragon that can't be reasoned with. He just exists. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost, <laughs> it's almost like in Jurassic Park, you've got the T-Rex and you've got the Velociraptors. And in the mm-hmm. end, the T-Rex kills the Velociraptors. Right. Cortez is the T-Rex. Zuckelcon is the Velociraptors <laughs> in this movie. That's that's so true. Like it's that's a pretty good analogy. But um yeah, so I would be interested to see what differences you see. Because I guess true, they don't they don't ever confront the mm-hmm. invading force, they just divert it. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it's it's harder watching it now, watching anything like Pocahontas mm-hmm. or El Road del Dorado and stuff where it's like it was simple joy when I watched it as a sure. kid, and now there's that tinge of like I know how this ends oh, in real life. I don't want to get into a post-colonial reading of this movie because that is a deep dive that I am not comfortable with. So deep. But it just that's just that's one difference right. if we're gonna talk about it that but, you're just like, I I know, I know how yeah. this ends. They don't divert them forever. Eldorado survives with Eldorado sealing themselves off, that might have they, they might have lived happily ever after. And that's kind of the implication of the film, because in real history, there's been no Eldorado discovered. So, for, for all we know, they could be living the life and just playing non-lethal elbow basketball in that court. That's fine. <laughs> with armadillos. But, um, yeah, the, uh, I think that probably the key difference, though, with, um, you know, we talked in terms... Okay, first of all, the actual... The term white messiah was actually introduced to me by one of my film professors in college. And I thought it was... Mm-hmm. A, I thought it was a great term because it works. In this movie, they are two literal white messiahs. They are literally gods that have come, as prophesied, back to Earth. Right. Does messiah imply sacrifice, though? Because a lot of those films, I guess yeah. I guess they do sacrifice on some level, but does a white messiah have to sacrifice themselves? That's the a good question. I don't really remember, to be honest oh, okay. with you. But, you know, it's uh, the idea of... I think, that's why I think probably the mighty whitey is a better, you know, it's a better term. Yeah. Because it's funnier, The great white savior, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mighty whitey is Great white hope, yeah, it's a good one. Thanks, TV tropes. You're the best. <laughs> but yeah, I, their role in the society, even though they are literal, as opposed to, say, Kevin Costner in Dances with Wolves, who is treated as a prisoner who elevates himself through his superior European-influenced knowledge. Mm-hmm. That, was, that, that was verbal air quotes, that weird deep voice <laughs> I just did. Um... But as opposed to that, these guys are brought into this civilization under the assumption that they are deities, that Mm -hmm. they are demigods of some kind. And over time, but the weird thing is that they're not treated with a ton of reverence. I mean, there's that big celebration feast that they have and Mm -hmm. they're... You know, the but everything that's done for them, everybody's like, oh, neat. Yeah. <laughs> Gods. That's pretty cool. They battle a couple yeah. times. There's yeah, some right? kowtowing. Yeah. yeah, a little bit. I mean, people do definitely uh, treat, you know, treat them with respect. 
an immense amount of respect, a completely unearned amount of respect because of a weird coincidence with that volcano. Oh, that was which a great was coincidence. Very convenient. That was perfect. <laughs> so convenient. Um, even at the right beat in the conversation. Yep. I mean, yeah. even, and you think about it, even if he hadn't stopped it, it would have still worked mm. because it was like, it was flowing with the, the kind of motion of their conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Perfect. But yeah, I don't know. I thought it was, I thought it was very interesting the way they portrayed like the, I guess specifically the chief is who I'm thinking of because you're right. The locals definitely did give, like treat them with an immense amount of reverence, but the chief mm-hmm. was like, huh, They were cool. buddies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get that. Sako Khan too, but I guess he was more of a like, He's a religious leader, so he would be closer to... He would be able... But, like, yeah, the the way they're treated by kind of the two village elders is very, like, yeah, what's up? Like, I'm gonna go consult with this guy. I'm I keep thinking about, I keep thinking about this. If it was set, like, let's say a hundred years later in, uh, like, the puritanical colonies in New England, mm. and it was a movie about uh, the... There's an... Like, let's say there's an established colony of, like, super fundamentalist religious Puritans, mm. and a flying saucer from Mars lands, and they believe these to be God, like uh, the second, like the second coming so of the Jesus Christ, or something are like the that. Natives. Exactly how oh. the tables have turned. I keep thinking about how that would play out, and I'm thinking that would probably be pretty similar, actually. Yeah, maybe that would be a good movie. Do we not have one of those? Is that I one? don't think we have any mm. movies where visitors from another planet are treated as though they are the second coming of Jesus Christ. Although I would specifically love. by Puritans, though. yes, that I would, would be love great. That. It could be. Oh man, that's a, that's. A, I'm, I'm writing that one down. Yeah, uh, yeah. Put that in the bank. Puritan. Do you think we can make that a short? Puritan aliens. Underline, underline. Okay. Yeah, how do we. Even aliens as deities. Do we not have any movies like that? I took a course in college. This is getting way off track, but this is an interesting story. I thought. I took took a course when I was a sophomore in college called Lost Tribes and Sunken Continents. And it was all about how the theories from like the 70s about how aliens influenced the Incas to build pyramids and things like that were inherently racist. It was not about the theories themselves. It was about how those theories were inherently racist because they assumed that people in, you know, indigenous people in the Americas couldn't possibly figure out how to build pyramids on their own through Mm -hmm. knowledge of math or, you know, things like that. So basically it was all about how... Anytime white people think that aliens did something in the ancient world, it's because they're racist and the worst people on the planet. Mm. I realized this when it was too late to drop the course, and so I took it for a whole semester, and it was the worst hour of my oh, week. Oh, no. That sounds like it could be fascinating. Although I would say, like, Stonehenge. They say the same thing about Stonehenge, yep, right? So, like, true. could it just be timist? Not necessarily Oh, no, 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 no. My professor conveniently left that one out, and I never thought to bring it up. So, uh, yeah, I have no idea what he would say about that one. But, mm-hmm. anyway. So, let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. What did you think about the ending when you rewatched it? Not as a kid, because mm-hmm. as a kid, who gives a shit about the ending? But, what, rewatching it, what did you think about the ending? I always forget that Zekul Khan doesn't die when he kind of... He, like, plummets into this, like, whirlwind of water. That's usually called a whirlpool. Whirlpool, thank you. Um, So, and I had just seen this meme about how all Disney villains die by falling because gravity is, like, the best scapegoat. You you didn't kill them. They just fell to their deaths. And I find it interesting, and I'll let you finish, but I find it interesting that that trend started after Die Hard with Hans Gruber falling off the Nakatomi Plaza. (laughs) Oh, so true. I mean, but it is. It's the perfect, like, 
your your protagonist cannot kill. That is just wrong. Of course. So the villain has to die by natural causes that either they, you know, the protagonist had a hand in, or maybe they just didn't. Maybe it's the the I villain's mean, own plans and done in by his own hubris. That's exactly. the best way. Exactly. But um, so I always forget that every time I watch it, and then I'm like, oh shit, there he is. Um, I mean, if I were to predict what was to happen next, which I actually, this was the first time I watched it and was like, why didn't they make a sequel? And then I looked it up and it's because they went 20 million under budget and, or, you know, didn't make $20 million of their budget. So they apparently scrapped every sequel that they had already planned, which of course they had already planned several. I mean, what specifically are you? Well, I guess the fact that it was, it was almost a non-ending because I for sure, as you remembered it, when it happened, I thought for sure when Zuckle Khan got punched into the whirlpool, I'm going to say that sentence again, when Zuckle Khan got punched into that whirlpool. Yep. Which was a great choreograph. That was just like the epitome of their friendship. It was such a well-wrought scene. Like, come on. It was also... I'm going to bring it right back here. That was also that movement of where they choreographed, like, the timed punch. That is a hallmark of those Hope and Crosby Road movies. Really? The double punch? They do this thing where when they're cornered, and it happens in, I think, every one of the movies, they do this thing where they look at each other, and they do patty cake, patty cake, baker's, Man, and then they throw a double punch at whoever's no. like cornering them. So that's oh, a now di- I need to see these movies. That's a direct pull from from those, which I thought was kind of funny. I loved and the the fake fight. Well, I mean the real fake fight build up to yes. it, where you're just like, oh no, yep. they're fighting, they're fighting, they're fighting, and then it's like, and they're friends. Like, now that part, Woo. that part was original. That was, and I thought that was kind of cool. That was great. But my point with the whole thing was that I definitely thought that was going to be the climax of the movie. Right. Nope. No, and that is, I do remember, as I was watching it, um, seeing, like, at some point, I guess I moved my mouse or something, and seeing that there's still 20 minutes left in the movie, and I was like, wait a minute, we're about to defeat the bad guy, where does this go from here? Like, I thought they just left, and I had totally forgotten about Cortez's, like, that we have to still reckon with him, so. Yeah, and and I'll be honest, I I felt like, by the time they got to that point, it was, it almost felt like the writers had been like, oh, shit! Forgot about Cortez, <laughs> which I know wasn't what actually happened, and they did have to deal with it. I just felt like, quite honestly, they kind of blew their load with that stone jaguar thing, because then the actual climax of the movie is what we got to knock over this rock column. Yeah, that was. I mean, that's doesn't that's fair. Really, it's it's you peaked too soon, man. It didn't it didn't work. It was underwhelming. The actual end of the movie was just underwhelming compared to like that weird. Well, first, okay, we gotta talk. We haven't even touched on the whole fact that there is a very strong theme of ritual human sacrifice in this movie. Oh, yeah, that gets brought up several times. Several times. Like, Zaku Khan is super into ritual he human sacrifice. He is raring for a sacrifice. The gods tell him, no, thanks. And he's like, yeah, but we want to, like, kill some people, though. No means no. Yeah. No means no. Yeah. Yeah, no, we get we get close to oh we no they sacrifice at least one at person at least one person there is that one Jaguar person who guard. Dies. Yeah. yeah which he always reminded me I guess I did see maybe Empress New Groove was that before this one he always reminded me of Pacha close. a little bit so yeah. I never got the that he was just an idiot like he mm. was the kind of dumb henchman character I read that character so differently as a kid and not. Not in any important way. He's not an important character, but I, I got where they were going, yeah. and it seemed more in this viewing like they were like knowing how that character ends, 
see it seemed like they were kind of trying to undervalue his life because he's yeah. dumb and that was hard to watch yeah it was it was they were dancing around this human sacrifice thing for most of the movie and i was yeah. like that's dark yeah. and not hard to decode by a 10 year old watching this movie and then they actually show Zuckle Khan throwing that guy into that pit and I was like oh my god they actually showed like literal uh-huh. it was it, it was like it some kind the of magic cult work. Yeah, yeah it literally made the, yeah, it made the magic work like that's some serious dark magic my yeah. man and is he the only one who dies in this because usually like any film like this, there's going to be one big character death. Like, I'm pretty sure he's the only person that dies. And that's like kind of surprising. That's, mm. You know, it, it seems like somebody close to them yeah. would die, but yeah. there wasn't, yeah, wasn't a lot of options. The whole idea that the movie ends opening to a sequel is fine. Mm. I'm not opposed to that. With the three characters, which we didn't even touch on the whole very adult portrayal of the relationship oh. between uh, Chell and Miguel. Oh, yeah. Uh, or Tulio, Tulio, Tulio sorry. Yeah. Chell and Tulio. Um, uh, but the fact that like they all three kind of ride off into the sunset and they're just ready for the next adventure, I'm fine with that. Except for the fact that there is no sequel. Yeah. And so we're pretty much left to assume that they have died of starvation or were killed by the Incas or whoever happened to be the next door uh, civilization. I don't know if we're left to assume that. I assumed they went on to the next adventure, so... Which, based on geographically where they are, there's a limited amount of possibilities for their land-based adventures to take them. There's a... Mexico. They could go to anywhere. They could go, you know, Central America. I'm, I'm sure they just opened up a little surf shop in Cancun and Absolutely. are living off the of spring break money. I could not imagine any different possibility for them, but yeah, yeah. that's just me. I, this movie, going back to the adult themes, which we have... Please, you know, let's talk about adult themes in the road to El Dorado. This. this is a PG movie, which... Yep, sure is. Which, I mean, maybe, but we see bare asses. Yep. Like, Three different times in one mm-hmm. sequence, mm-hmm. which this was the first time also on watching that I was like, oh, you wouldn't see that in a Disney movie. Like, it just yeah. didn't strike me in the same way. I'm yep. sure as a kid I was kind of like, teehee, but like, watching What's, it now, I'm like, whoa, it's, Disney it's, would never have let that fly. They would not have. But let's be honest here. I mean, as adults, we're looking at that. That's not pretty tame. It just, in the context of a kid's movie, it doesn't seem that way. Right. And in the context of it in the movie is that like... They are taking a bath, like they're they're yeah. washing off after you know this whole montage of them on the road, right? And monkeys steal their clothes, so they have to run after yeah. them. So it's not like in a sexual context. Not even close. Disney would never let that fly. Not, not even, now. No, not absolutely ever. not. No way. No. And then yes, there are some clear illusions for Miguel and Chell, or not Miguel, shoot, <laughs> Tulio and Chell that. There are some like adult things going on in their relationship. Yeah, like adult sex things. Oh, happening. absolutely. And you're practically just... like almost on screen, like shockingly close to being on screen. Oh yeah. And what does he say? He's the high priest, Zeko Khan, the bad guy, is like about to walk in on them. And Chell says, like, what would he think if he saw a god with me? And Tulio says, "Lucky god." Yeah. And you're just like what and his hair is all messed up and she's clearly on top of him he's just like wouldn't fly in a Disney movie you know animating sequences is a very arduous task and so animated movies get a million years of pre-production at no point did somebody say 
Maybe he shouldn't be making that face when she's, like, scratching his back. Oh, I didn't even think about that. But, yes, absolutely. He scratches her back, and, like, that is an O face. That yeah, is... for sure. Unbelievable. Like, there's, like, he scratches her back, she scratches his back, and, like, his eyeballs, are, his eyeballs are going in different directions. I was like, what am I watching? Yeah. Right I mean, her outfit is very... Not, not to get there, you know, where yeah. would she want ladies? But, like, it is... It's more revealing than what you'd see in a Disney movie, but absolutely. let's be honest... Not by much, I guess. Fair. Like, it's definitely not as revealing as, like, let's say, Little Mermaid. Oh, uh, yeah. You know what? When you bring Ariel into it, yes, <laughs> Disney has gotten there. But... Or, quite frankly, uh, uh, Jasmine. Like, let's, like, sec like, second Golden Age Disney has a track record of pretty revealing female outfits. True. Although, in Aladdin, I guess it's pretty revealing everybody outfits for the most part. Right, right. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's it, it definitely flirts with. Uh, inappropriate content for Oh, they children. do more than flirt. Mm. But yeah, that one struck me more watching it as an adult. Yeah, between the um, everything but a sex scene and the ritual human sacrifice, it definitely <laughs> touched on some pretty adult things. Yeah, parents out there, think about letting your kids watch this one. Although it is fantastic and clearly I turned out okay. So, you know <laughs> yeah. what? So, we pretty much covered everything that I had. I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts? We're getting very close to the end here. I was wondering yeah. if you had anything to kind of wrap us up here. Hmm. Do you think... Please, fire away. Miguel, Tulio, and Chell. Polyamorous? Ooh. It's very interesting that you bring that up. Mm-hmm. Because, again, I'm bringing it back to the Hope and Crosby road movies. Mm-hmm. There has been, like, in uh, semi-contemporary film criticism the idea brought up that that was a subtext of those movies, even when they were in the 40s, oh. but trying to sneak it past censors because there's always two guys, one girl. Always. Every single time. Oh. And they always leave whatever exotic locale they are in together. And they've always been competing. The two men have always been competing for the attentions of the one woman. Always. Every single time. And it just mm. ends up going that way. And so examining... You know, one movie it happens, it's... It's whatever. Two movies that happens, eh, still kind of whatever. When it happens in seven movies that are definitely connected, people start to draw conclusions, especially mm -hmm. critics in the 70s started to look at these movies through a different lens and kind of postulated this idea. So I'm thinking that that is a carryover from those movies and in terms of being possibly unintended but still very much a possibility. Mm -hmm. um, as for my own conclusions, it's a kid's movie. I'm going to assume not. Mm. But, we don't uh, care about authorial intent here. Well, we care about context. Well, also, okay, if we're talking about context, I think that uh, Miguel did not... Wait a minute. I keep forgetting who's who. Shit. Miguel is blonde. Okay. Is... Oh my god, what if I got that wrong? No, no, no. I'm pretty sure I'm right. right. <laughs> you're right, you're right, you're right, right. Miguel, I do not think at any point in the film expressed any interest in Chell. That is, okay, And yes. vice versa. Yeah, so... That is not the, like, if this is not a polyamorous relationship, <laughs> it's not because of Tulio and Miguel, it's because of Miguel and Chell. Although she kisses him on the mouth at one point, but no, no, no. that was like a very friendly, like, yeah. I approve yeah. of this kind of thing. You're right, I'd actually forgotten about that, so that does yeah. add a lot of weight to your theory. Mm -hmm. That you didn't really present as a theory, as more of a question, but let's, yeah. you know, I get it. You know what, there's, there's underlining it. We're, we're adults here, we're yeah. grown-ups. Yeah, I... I could see it. There's definitely... I don't know. I could see it either I, way. I, I, They're so perfect for each other. <laughs> but maybe it's not romantic. Who, who knows? Who, Julio and Miguel? Oh, yeah. 
I mean, Shell and Miguel are very cute too, but like, Tulio <laughs> Miguel are soulmates on some level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's just guy love, just love between two guys. Maybe, maybe. Uh, <laughs> that can mean a lot of things too. It does. It can and it does. Um, literally all of my notes have been covered, but, uh, yeah, any, uh, any real, uh, rapper-uppers? can't believe they just came out of my rapper-uppers. mouth. Rapper-uppers. Yeah. Uh, make you watch one kid's movie. <laughs> goes out the window. You're Mickey Mouse now. Very um, professional. I think Sorry. I'm ready to hear about the next one we're going to watch. All right, cool. Oh, would I recommend this movie? I would recommend oh, this movie yes. to a 10-year-old. I would recommend this movie to anyone. anyone. Now, you, now you say that. Yeah. You're coming from a position of having watched this movie since you were, what, eight, nine years old? Probably. Okay. Well, 2000, yeah. I don't know do the math right now. Uh, yeah. Well, anyway. I, I'm coming from a position of having watched this movie as a 28 and a half year old mm, last yeah. weekend. And I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to everybody. I would for sure recommend revisiting it if you liked it as a kid. And I would recommend... You know what? Kids can handle that adult stuff. Like, we were talking about it, how it wouldn't fly with Disney. Kids can handle it. They don't oh, they totally can. It's not a problem. No, yeah. just, like, show it. Like, kids are fine with it. Like, I would for sure say show it to kids. Yeah. So if you're a kid, check it out. Also, if you're a kid, you've listened this far into the podcast, you got cooler parents than I had, so yeah. that's fine. Totally, totally misjudged our demographic here. <laughs> Um, We're going to be reviewing all kids' movies from this point forward. <laughs> I would not be mad at it. I probably have just seen too many of them <laughs> for that to fly. Um, yeah, I mean, I yeah, I guess not everyone. I mean, yes. Watch it. If you don't like it, it's an hour and a half. What did you lose? If you're our age, if you're in your mid-20s and you have not seen this movie, at least check it out so that you yeah. have a, a slight advantage in terms of, you know, cultural touchstones from your childhood that you yes. missed out on because your parents didn't let you watch every movie. Ugh. Or whatever. I don't and remember it's why. It's so I didn't quotable. It. You you may find it coming up in ways you didn't expect. Mostly gold puns, if if you're any indication. <laughs> Not nearly enough gold puns. Not obviously. enough gold puns. Th- I'm no. adding those as kind of a, a postscript. But would you say that this movie is the gold standard of early 2000s animation? I absolutely would. Will you say that? I will say it is the gold standard. Of 2000s animation. All right. Was that the full sentence? That's the full okay, sentence. Good. You nailed it. I thought I missed a word or You two. crushed it. All right. Well, are we ready to move on to our pick for next week? Oh, I'm so excited. All right. Well, next week we return to the 80s. Ooh. You live in a boring suburban cul-de-sac. What if your new neighbors were kind of weird? So weird that you were pretty sure they were in a satanic cult murderers. Starring young Tom Hanks, a young Carrie Fisher, and Corey Feldman in possibly his greatest role. What? From 1989, it's Joe Dante's criminally underrated cult comedy, The Burbs. Ooh, okay. Burbs with two Bs. It is available to rent on iTunes. It is available to rent on Amazon Prime. I think Prime has it for like $2.99. Oh, sweet. Highly recommend. Honestly, I would say buy this movie. I'm going to tell you that straight up at the very beginning. It's very good. One of my personal favorite 80s comedies, and nobody has seen it. Nobody. Nobody. Yeah. It is The Burbs, and uh, go out and watch it. And uh, with uh, without further ado, I'm Kyle. I'm Kari. We'll see you next time. See ya. So, let's be gods. The perks are great. Yeah. El Dorado on a plate. Thank you. Local feeling should not be ribbed. Never rip up, never rip up a local feeling. No, my uh, yeah. Welcome to Have You Seen? No, sorry. <laughs> Fucked it up already. Boy, we're three episodes deep and you're already messing um, it up. I have wine this time, so it's going to be different.